the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Is cancer inevitable? That's a question many of us ask ourselves. While a cancer diagnosis is scary, according to today's guest, Dr. Ashani Waratna, there's growing evidence that fewer cancers will be a death sentence. Dr. Waratna joins us today to discuss the latest cancer research and what the future may hold. Dr. Waratna was appointed to the National Cancer Advisory Board by President Biden in 2021 and is recognized by the National Cancer Institute as a top five researcher. She is the E.V. McCollin Chair of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at the John Hopkins School of Public Health and is author of the book, Is Cancer Inevitable? Welcome, Dr. Waratna. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, Doctor, just about everyone is familiar with the word cancer, but what is it that actually happens in the body that results in a cancer diagnosis? So, when a, can- when a cell becomes a cancer cell, it's usually a normal cell that has gone awry. Um, there are genetic changes that happen within the cell that make it start to grow out of control. And you can, you know, it's often described in the cancer field as a car that starts to move and you can move the car either by stepping on the gas or um, releasing the brake. And that's basically what happens in cancer cells. There are mechanisms that kick in that either cause the cancer cell to grow uncontrollably or stop it from dying when it should die. Is it true that we all have cancerous cells every day, but that the immune system gets rid of it? Um, That is basically true. We have cells that we call initiated cells, so cells that have undergone some damage to their DNA, to the genetic material inside them um, that exist, that have the propensity to become a tumor cell. Uh, Many of those are eradicated by our immune system, and many of those just sit there and don't really do anything uh, either. So what is it then that triggers those cells to grow beyond what the immune system can handle? So we've been really interested um, in my lab in particular in understanding the impact of age on those particular cells. There are other people who have looked at different, um, many, many different triggers to making a cancer cell become a cancer cell. You know, there's what we call the two-hit hypothesis, which is that if, a, if there's an, one of those initiated cells that has a mutation in their DNA, so, you know, a change in their genetic code, um, but then it acquires another hit to that DNA, then that cell becomes a cancer cell. Something we've been looking at is the fact that you know, we know that aging is intricately linked to cancer, right? 90% of the people who get cancer are over the age of 50. 90% of the people who die from cancer are over the age of 50. And so we asked, is there something that's changing in the environment around those tumor cells uh, that becomes, um, that drives those tumor cells to become cancerous? And so we've been looking at changes in the immune cells as well as changes in cells called fibroblasts that provide a lot of structure for um, any organ in the body. And we have been fascinated to see that as we age, those normal cells also age and they start to have very different conversations with the tumor cells than they used to when they were young. 
does the risk increase as we get older? The risk for cancer, the incidence rates and the risk for dying from cancer all increase as we age. Um, and also, sadly, our response to therapy is uh, much, much more muted as we age as well. You know, what's interesting about this research, I remember people used to say that as if they made it to age 60 or 70 and beyond and they never had a cancer diagnosis, they almost felt like they were out of the woods, like I made it to this point and I'll be fine. And and your research is actually showing the opposite. Yes. So, you know, it's, it is interesting because um, there is an age. So over the age of 85, in many, many cancers, we see the incidence rate start to drop. So it's not entirely untrue that that's the case. It's that, it's that sort of uh, 50 to 75 age range that is the dangerous age range, if you will, for cancer. Um, but I, I actually agree with that. Like if you've made it to 85 or 90, uh, it's less likely. Now, whether that's actually less likely that you're going to get cancer or whether it's um, that you're going to die of something else because you're 85 or 90 uh, is unclear. So we, we don't really understand that dip off at that later age. So it makes a lot of sense, this type of research, because people are living longer. So these types of things are showing up now. That's right. And I often say, you know, we weren't meant to live this long, right? If you think about our Neanderthal ancestors uh, who lived in caves, they lived a full life and were done by the time they were 40. Um, And now, thanks to modern medicine, to antibiotics, you know, penicillin in particular, I think, increased the the survival rate of humans by a good 20 years. Um, We are living way longer than we were supposed to live. So all of the mechanisms that are supposed to keep these cancer cells in check start to break down as we age. And uh, you're absolutely right, Um, because we live longer, we're more susceptible to these different diseases and uh, negative outcomes. So you describe some of the things that happen to us physically as we age. Are there things that we do in our life, you know, the type of life that we lead, that accelerate that? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, um, the cancer that I work on in particular is melanoma, which is a very aggressive form of skin cancer. And obviously, now that I've said the word skin cancer, you know that I'm going to say, you know, uh, tanning, uh, tanning beds, going out, tanning at the beach. All of those are things that prematurely age your skin. And we actually see that in our lab when we look at uh, the normal cells that are in your skin, when we look at uh, the same signatures in older people compared to young people who've had tanning history, uh, there's a lot of similarities there. So tanning can prematurely age you, uh, smoking prematurely ages your skin and your lungs and many, many other things in your body. So yes, you're absolutely right. There are lifestyle choices we can make that uh, will prevent premature aging. Which do you think is more important, heredity or epigenetics lifestyle? So for example, someone like me, if we have anyone listening who's like me, My brother died of leukemia. My sister and father both died of lung cancer. So looking at me genetically, I would be of a higher risk. But how much of a say do I actually have in determining whether or not I develop cancer? So, you know, that's um, a really great question. So there are some cancers where the genetics, you know, override everything, right? Uh, but there are many kinds, like your family history, for example, where there are things you can do to protect yourself. You can not smoke. You can not tan. Um, you can eat a healthy diet. You can exercise. All of those things are going to help lower your risk, um, even though you may have a higher risk than others. Making good lifestyle choices can definitely lower your your, uh, your risk and, if you were to develop cancer, help you deal uh, more effectively with the therapies that you're going to receive or um, just the side effects of the cancer itself. So I think, you know, we always advocate a healthy lifestyle, Um, whether or not, I guess it's the title of the book, right, is cancer inevitable, (laughs) whether or not the cancer is inevitable, nonetheless, I think, um, is still in question. I've actually seen something, I think it was like a one in two chance of getting cancer over the age of 50. First, is that correct? Is that a, an accurate statistic? Yes, it's very high. Okay, yeah. so if, if you're looking at a 50% chance then, what does this mean for us? You know, what is the science saying about the future of cancer? Is it promising for healing? Do you think we'll ever eradicate it? 
So, you know, in a way, it's kind of why I wrote this book. It was during a time in the pandemic where everything felt really dark and depressing. It still feels dark and depressing, honestly. Um, but I wanted to sort of write this book a little bit as a sign of hope because, you know, I have a lot of friends and a lot of family who are not scientists, and they will ask me, well, why haven't you cured cancer yet? You spent all this, all your time working. We never see you, but yet you haven't cured cancer, right? And I tell them, you know, it's amazing, though, how far we've come. So while cancer itself might be inevitable, dying from cancer, I think, is no longer inevitable. And, you know, I've spent almost 30 years researching cancer at this point, and I'm amazed at how far we've come because we have, you know, we would see melanoma patients coming in the door with a stage four diagnosis 10 years ago. That was a complete death sentence, right? And today, um, 25 to 30 percent of those patients are actually surviving 10 years or longer, like basically being cured of their disease. And that is just an absolute um, a revelation in cancer research. It's the same for breast cancer. It's the same for many, many other cancers where now we have medications and therapies that are allowing patients to live completely healthy lives um, even though they've had cancer. Because of the pandemic, we've, we're all learning a lot about viruses and about variants and how things change. When cancer develops, is it, now, and I know which person's body is different, but the, the mutation of the cells, is that pretty standard or does that vary as time goes on? So it varies not only from cancer to cancer, but even within cancer types. So cancers that we see developing in older people have a very different mutational spectrum than cancers that we see developing in younger people. Cancers that we see in melanoma look completely different than uh, cancer cells in pancreatic tumors. So it is very, very different, and that's why it's so hard to come up with a, you know, a one-size-fits-all cure. Even within a cancer type, uh, there are so many different subtypes of cancer. So, Doctor, not only are you a pioneering researcher, but you've also had your own experience with cancer. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what you learned from that on a personal level? Absolutely. So, um, you know, I, I think it's it's a little, I, I always like to emphasize the fact that my lesion was very, very pre-malignant. It was not, I would not call it cancer, but it was startling because, you know, I work on melanoma. And a form of melanoma called acral lentigious melanoma is, affects people of color. And just because of what I do, I know what that looks like. And so I was getting a pedicure and I looked down at my feet and it looked literally like someone had drawn a line straight down my nail with a Sharpie. And I was like, whoa, I know what that looks like. That looks like an ALM. Luckily for me, it wasn't yet an ALM. It was very, again, very pre-malignant. But I went straight to the dermatologist, had them remove my whole toenail um, because I didn't want it to ha even have a slight chance of developing into a melanoma. Um, and so I was lucky, right, because I knew what to look for. And so I actually went on Facebook and I posted about that experience and I gave, I, you know, I had a picture of um, what the lesion looked like. And a friend of mine saw that and she said, well, wait a minute, I saw that on my husband's toenail. I thought it was a fungus. And so I took him to the dermatologist. Like she sent me a message telling me all this. She's like, I took him to the dermatologist and it was actually a stage one melanoma. And they removed it and he, he has a great prognosis because they caught it early enough. So, you know, I was really glad that I shared that story because... Um, it allowed her to look and see her husband, who had a much more advanced stage than I did. Is that how melanoma usually presents in nail beds? No, that's actually a very rare form of melanoma. Um, it tends to affect everybody, but really it is the most predominant form of melanoma in people of color. It's actually what Bob Marley died of. Mm -hmm. um, he had that on his toenail and it spread eventually to his brain. Um, but in general, melanoma presents as a lesion on your skin uh, that's called cutaneous melanoma. It looks like a little mole. And we use a system to diagnose melanoma called the ABCDE of melanoma. So A stands for asymmetry. If the borders of a mole are, um, I mean, if the mole is different in any way, like if it's bigger on one side than the other, if the color is different in one side than the other, so on. B stands for borders. If the mole has very smooth borders, it's probably unlikely to be a melanoma. 
Um, but if the borders are ragged or scalloped, it's probably more likely to be a melanoma. If the color, which is the C, is, is different um, or dark or red, um, you know, you should get the mole checked out. If the diameter is really large, you should get the mole checked out. And most importantly is the E, which is evolving. If the mole is changing at all or like it used to be itchy, but it's not, it wasn't itchy before, but now it's itchy or it was black and now it's red. Um, or the borders are starting to look more scalloped, you should definitely go get that checked because really early diagnosis is key to a good outcome. So, Doctor, it is now pool and beach season. What do you want us to know in addition to what you've already told us about skin cancer? What else do you want us to know? Um, I would love for people to, you know, seek shade, wear UV shirts, white-brimmed hats, um, reapply. There's some block. I often have people saying to me, um, I don't want to see you this summer because I look really tan, but I promise I've been wearing my sunblock. <laughs> and I say, well, you've got to reapply. <laughs> yeah, most of my friends avoid me all summer. It's very lonely in the summer. I would be avoiding you too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, so wear your sunblock. Try to stay out of the sun at the height of the day. Um, and seek shade. You know, it really is something you can do to prevent uh, melanoma and skin cancer because the incident, it's one of the few cancers whose incidence rates are rising. People like your friends and like me who have done a lot of damage over the years, is it too late to reverse what we've already done to ourselves? Um, is it too late to reverse it? Yeah, the Maybe, damage. But it's not... Yeah, it's may, maybe. Um, you probably have initiated cancer cells, you know, in your skin. We all do. Um, and the, but the truth is that by taking, you know, care of your health, eating right, exercising, um, you know, cutting down on sugar, um, all of those are lifestyle changes that can really help uh, overcome some of the effects of, you know, uh, cancer and again, not everybody. Even if you have initiated tumor cells in your skin, not everyone is going to progress to cancer. So it's just like with any other type of cancer: healthy lifestyle, um, following preventative me measures. Even if we've done the damage, we can hopefully stop progression. That's correct. Um, but making making good lifestyle choices, we're realizing more and more how important that is. Um, how obesity affects cancer, how smoking and tanning we already knew about. Um, but just, you know, cutting down sugar, there's some great research being done on alcohol as well. So none of this is pleasant news. <laughs> but, um, you know, they, they, they really do have an impact on tumor cells. But, you know, it's interesting because every doctor that I interview for this show, it, it, no matter what the health topic is, it all boils down to the same type of advice. It's the things that we do right. have a lot of control over, stress and diet and sleep and exercise. It's really just, you know, keeping ourselves as healthy as possible, keeping our immune system in top fighting form. And, and no matter what the health condition is. And, and I always like to, to leave people with hope because we do have power over all of this. That's right. I mean, in a way, that's why I wrote this book. Um, is to say, you know, we have power over some of this for sure. And for that, for the unlucky ones of us where um, the cancer does take hold, uh, there's still hope because we have so many great therapies today. And I think that's such a, a, an important message to leave everyone with, because as I said, cancer, you know, hearing those words, you have cancer, that's probably one of the biggest fears we have in life. And your book and and your research, it offers hope to all of us that if we do hear those words, it doesn't mean that we're going to have a death sentence, that there is a lot of hope. That's right. That's exactly right. And that, that is the message I hope that everybody takes from the book. And the book is, Is Cancer Inevitable? Doctor, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and your work? Um, well, you can follow me on Twitter at Ashani TW. Um, you can also uh, visit our website at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. And um, the book is available at Johns Hopkins Wavelength Press as well as Amazon. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thank you so much. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, but only if you make a good impression. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I empower you to make media appearances more impactful. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills. To learn more, visit CYACYL.com slash media training. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. Joining us for this week's To Your Health is Darian Aletto, a licensed professional counselor who is a mental health provider for Bergen New Bridges LGBTQ Plus Health and Wellness Center. In her role as Director of Outpatient Behavioral Health Services, Darian oversees the Acute Partial Hospitalization Program, Outpatient Behavioral Health Clinic, and the Children's Intensive Outpatient Program. Welcome, Darian. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Darian, we hear so much these days about LGBTQ. For those who may not be familiar with what this really means, can you explain what that means? Of course, I'd be happy to. So LGBTQ plus um, stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and the Q is kind of interchangeable. It can mean questioning or it can be, it can also be uh, said as queer. So originally queer was used as a pejorative slur, but now the community has really taken back the word and it now has become sort of an umbrella term to describe a myriad of ways people can reject binary binary categories of gender and sexual orientation as a way to express who they are. Um, Some also common letters you'll see after the Q is I, which is intersex, or A, which is asexual. And then of course you always see the plus because we always wanna be inclusive of all the different kinds of terminology that might be included in the community. Why do you think we're hearing more about this now? Why is the conversation beginning? I think the conversation has really come to the forefront of our culture because we are now starting to see that the ability to identify as something other than just the traditional male, female, heterosexual, lesbian, gay has become more normalized. And I think that now we're starting to see things such as sex, gender identity, and gender expression, and sexual orientation as something that's more of on a spectrum as opposed to just these very black and white terms. So I think that we're seeing more of an inclusion in different kinds of ways to express ourselves, both in terms of sexual orientation and gender. You know, often we hear people who really don't understand what a lot of this means, making derogatory type comments. Do you think that this is something someone chooses? Do you think that it's innate, that they're born with a particular orientation? That's a really tough question, but I think it always goes back to kind of this nature versus nurture conversation. I do think there are many, many people in the community that are born this way. You know, we see children as young as five or six who's come, who might be, you know, gendered as female at birth because biologically they're born female, but then they identify as male when they start to really come into their own and start to identify and get to know themselves. So I think it it is a a matter of, yes, people can be born this way. But I think also, too, we we see, you know, especially in a lot of the teenage population that I work with, it is more normalized to see them identify as maybe pansexual or demisexual or bisexual because they see that there is an acceptance in the culture that, you know, I don't have to subscribe to heterosexual, lesbian, or gay. I can also be on a spectrum of things. So I think that we also see culturally it's more acceptable to to not identify as just one thing, to, to be more fluid in, in a lot of kind of ways. Do you believe that a, a younger child or a teenager has the ability to discern what he or she feels? I personally believe so, but a lot of what I also experience is working with children or, or minors clinically, you see that, you know, it's not so much that we're giving them like these these tools that say like, oh, you have to be this or you have to be that, or, you know, we're giving them ideas. I think we're giving them a platform to identify that I don't have to be what everyone says I need to be. I can choose what I'm attracted to, who I'm attracted to, how I express myself. And that platform allows them to be more aware of what they want internally. 
I read that depression strikes gay men at six times the rate of, of straight men, and that LGB youth are four times more likely to attempt suicide than their straight peers. How prevalent are mental health issues among the people that are struggling or or trying to navigate these types of feelings? We do see a higher rate of diagnosable mental health conditions in the LGBT plus community. And that can happen for a myriad of reasons. You know, the, the community itself faces a lot of stigma still. You know, we like to believe it's 2022. A lot of people are more accepting, but the community is still stigmatized. And, and things such as coming out, trauma, rejection, substance abuse issues, homelessness and suicidal ideation or suicide attempts are much more prevalent because we see that there is a minority stress put on this group. You know, 40% of transgender adults have attempted suicide in their lifetime compared to less than 5% of the general U.S. population. And, And that's a striking number because we do see that culturally not all not all members of the community are accepted. So they are getting what, what we do call minority stress in the mental health community, and that's when, you know, a minority population has additional stress on themselves because, you know, they do receive stigma from the majority of the population. Um, so we see that this does count in their mental health because on a day-to-day basis, they are experiencing things such as, you know, stigmatization, um, you know, rejection from society because, you know, people might feel it's a quote-unquote choice you know, especially youth are much more susceptible to this. Um, The Trevor Project, which is an amazing nonprofit organization that works with LGBTQ plus youth, you know, 73% of the youth in the 2020 survey they did reported experiencing symptoms of anxiety. um, And a lot of those those youth were transgender or non-binary. And 50% of them were experiencing symptoms of depression. So we see how their mental health is impacted by the daily stressors that they receive from maybe not being accepted, whether it's in a school setting, a family setting. Um, This was also exacerbated by COVID. You know, the shutdown really did have a very severe impact on the community. To speak more to the youth aspect, you know, now youths were at home. Maybe they were in a family that wasn't, that maybe weren't so accepting of their status or of their gender expression, their gender identity. And, you know, maybe they felt that they were not accepted in their home environment. They didn't have access to mental health care that maybe they would have had if they were in a traditional school setting. Um, But, you know, we also saw that there's, such a, a, a strain on this community because they don't feel that they can safely go t- to seek mental health services for fear of being judged by providers. So, you know, it is a much more prevalent issue in the men- in the LGBTQ plus community because there's so many other factors that play a role in them, one, getting help and getting quality care. I can't even imagine what it must feel like because, you know, we all know what it was like to grow up and you're trying to fit into whatever this quote unquote normal is supposed to be. And and anything that made you different than what the pack was, you you never felt like you fit in. And, And now in the age of social media where you can't escape it, I just can't imagine the pressure and and the pain that they must feel. Yeah. You know, it is so... It's just so interesting because we have this dichotomy going on in in society where we feel as though we have a very accepting culture and and the community itself is embraced, but we still also find that there are people who reject this idea of being on these spectrums for gender identity and expression or sexual orientation. And, you know, to have that on a daily basis, just kind of feeling as though you're not accepted for who you are or how you love is, is, is so stressful on the community. Darren, what advice do you offer to someone listening to us right now who can relate to what you're talking about? I think advice might be that mental health is such an important part of our overall health. And just because we can't see something or can't, you know, put a see it physically doesn't mean it doesn't impact a person. And to take care of our health is the ultimate ultimate act of self-love. So to be supportive to members of the LGBTQ plus community impacts their health in more ways than we can imagine. To be a supporter and to accept somebody unconditionally for who they are is the is the absolute best thing we could do to help support somebody and show them that we care for them. Where can our listeners go to learn more about New Bridges programs and your work? Listeners can go to newbridgehealth.org and on our website we have a a wide listing of the services that we provide, both mental health and medical. 
so we also have information about the LGBTQ plus health and wellness center, which is our wellness center specifically for adults in the LGBTQ plus community. Um, we have a number of services that are medical, meaning primary care. Um, we have hormone therapy as well. We also have mental health services, but also too, in our children's programs, we do have culturally competent counselors who receive training and who understand how to work with minor minors in the LGBTQ plus community and who have empathy and who work well with them. So anyone interested can go to our website, newbridgehealth.org. Darian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is WNYF, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. After decades fighting to free themselves from male-dominated social and economic structures, such as glass ceilings and pay equality, women still struggle. Today's guest, Allison Carmen, explores the forces in women's personal and professional lives that hold them back. She teaches that women can become fully realized so that every choice they make is not from fear, but from strength. Allison is a business consultant and life coach. Her new book is A Year Without Men, a 12-point guide to inspire and empower women. Welcome, Allison. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me today, Joan. So, Allison, I am so excited about your new book. I've heard about it for a long time. I, I feel like I was part of the process. So let's tell our listeners a little bit about what brought you to write this book, A Year Without Men? The, the title's intriguing. So how did you get to this place to write this book? You know what's so interesting about the title is I didn't expect all these people to have all these different opinions about it. Um, because what the title is really saying is I actually spent a year without men. And if you would have called me on June 29th, 2018, I would have told you I had a a wonderful life. I had a great business. I had already published The Gift of Maybe, a book about finding hope and possibility in uncertain times. Both my daughters were doing really well. And I thought I was in a really committed, beautiful marriage of, of 27 years. And then on June 30th, 2018, my husband came home from the gym and he told me he was he was leaving me, that he wanted to date other women he, we would still have family vacations and family holidays together. And I remember looking at him and I was like, you're joking, right? It, it was the furthest thing from my mind, the furthest thing from my life, the furthest thing I thought was ever possible. And he said, no, I'm serious. And he kept going into details about the women and what he wanted. And I, I just fell to the ground and I actually felt my heart like crack. And, and that I had no idea, but that moment was the beginning of a year without men because within a two-week period my biggest client of 25 years who's a male he was selling his business so he stopped speaking to me all my other male clients were gone and then I got an offer to be the part-time CFO of the motherhood center which is a day hospital for women with postpartum depression but it's also a company that only employs women so literally within a two-week period there were only women around in my life but the book is a journey. It's a journey of what happened when all the men were gone. And then I started to see the places in myself that I was hiding, that I was compromising, that I wasn't valuing myself because I wasn't being treated equal in the business world. And I wasn't, you know, right in my life. And so I got to a point where I started to kind of see those things within myself. And I really cultivated a lot more strength and resilience and different attitudes in business and different ways to empower myself. So the book is about my journey, but also about my journey in business for 30 years and how women can inspire and empower themselves from within to make a difference in their outside lives and really reach their full potential and success. Well, in so much of your professional career, as you said, it's been in a male-dominated world. I mean, you're also an attorney. And so you, as you said, were surrounded by men for most of your life. And then it, it seemed like somebody flipped a switch and everyone disappeared. All the men disappeared. And I know that you're a very reflective type of person. You like to find the meaning in things and what lessons can be learned. So what did it mean for you to experience a year without men? That's a really good question because it was really painful and there was a lot of grief and there was a lot of scorched earth and it would be an experience that 
I never would have chosen. But in the same time, when we look at meaning, I think it was an opportunity for me to kind of get back to my authentic self, my true self, and learn how to really value myself. I mean, if you look at it, you know, since 1991, men and women have been graduating from college at the same rate. And then you look 30 years later, um, if, and you look at the S&P 500, only 5% of the CEOs are women. Only 20% of the board members at these big companies are women. Um, men get, I think, promoted uh, twice as much in the first five years, even though men and women you know, start jobs at the same rate. So what happens is you're in this world and you see that your male counterparts are getting paid more. They're getting advancements more. And after a while, you look around and you say, it must be me. And, you know, there has to be something wrong with me because if I was so great, why am I not having that same success? And, yes, there are women that are successful. There are outliers. But a lot of us don't feel totally equal. So what this year did for me, it allowed me to find the places that I felt so bad about myself because of all these experiences. And also, you know, how bad I felt that my husband left me. And so the meaning was is that I'm valuable. And the outside world can't dictate that. And I can trust myself that I could be okay no matter what. And just because someone else says something doesn't mean it's true. And it really helped me build strength and resilience. So as I sit here today, again, I wouldn't have chosen the experience, but I feel that I'm stronger and I'm more me. And and that's very meaningful. And my hope is that I could help other women um, through the journey of empowerment. And inspiration, because I think women are genius business people. They are emotional warriors, and they just need to stay on the playing field and and figure out a way to get the life that they want. So, Allison, staying on the professional side for a moment, women and men are inherently different beings, and women are traditionally evaluated and judged on the same scale that men have been judged by for years. Is it fair to evaluate and judge women on the same scale, or should we be looked at differently? Well, well that's really interesting. I always say corporate corporate America was made by men for men. Right. And that, you know, men and women are equally capable. I mean, I've worked with some great men. I've worked with great women. I think what happens is that we're not truly welcomed. You know, there's this, this great um, study that was done about women's looks. And one study said women are accepted more if they're pretty earlier in their career and they get more advancement. And then when they get to the C-suite, that's when the looks go against them. And then there was another study that said the opposite thing and another study that had different findings. And the reason why it's not consistent is because we're not totally welcome. And so it's almost like corporate America will say, you could be here if you act like men, but what about childcare? What about pregnancy? What about, you know, there's no equity. I, I think that's what it is. It's that there's no recognition that men and women are different. And in order to have um, a corporate environment that is equal, there has to be a social contract where everybody's treated with the respect and, and there has to be collaboration. And, and corporate America is really not doing that. And also I, I find that women are also judged on their behaviors a lot as well, emotions. And again, it's, it's almost like if a woman is more likely to cry, you know, corporate America makes it like tears sink ships. But right. for me, I think tears don't sink ships. I think, you know, anger and resentment and putting your behaviors on other people are really the problem. So women might be judged for a reaction that they have that hurts nobody. Yet we accept other types of behaviors in this patriarchal culture that I do think causes a lot of problems. Well, and that's why I asked the question, Allison, about both sexes being judged by the same standards because of what you just said. If a man was soft-spoken and was kind and gentle in a meeting, people would be like, oh, what a, what a kind man. But if a woman, a woman does that, she's, you know, she's too easy. She's too soft. If a man gets emotional or angry, oh, he's tough. If a woman does, she's a with the B. So right. we yeah, have this standard, like you said, women just don't fit in. And, and really, COVID, the pandemic brought to light just how much the roles really haven't changed all of these years, because who ended up leaving the workforce to take care of the children at home? Uh, you're, you're so right. I have so much to say about that. But, but even if you look at 
the men and women who were actually home. Like some some parents were both home during during COVID. Even then, the woman did more of the child care if they didn't leave their job. They did more of the domestic tasks. And then there was a survey, many surveys done. Men found themselves so productive when they were home, like 70% more productivity. And women found themselves 30% more productive, right? Because if we don't equalize the playing field, you know, women are always going to be on the short end of the stick. The book is A Year Without Men, a 12-point guide to inspire and empower women. If you'd like to learn more about Allison and the book, you can visit alisoncarmen.com. Allison, in our final moments, if you could bullet point a few of your main teachings from the book, what would they be? Well, first, I think that the most important relationship that women have is with, is with uncertainty. And it affects men, women, affects women more than men because our road is not as clear. Like if we're going to be successful, we're going to have to be flexible. We're going to have to be innovative. We're going to have to be creative. So healing our relationship with the unknown and realizing that uncertainty is our best friend because that's where our true potential, all our possibilities lie, is one of the most important things. I think we have to work on acceptance. I think that's a really important thing. We need to learn to trust ourselves. We need to... You know, this whole mantra, just because someone said it doesn't mean it's true. We have to figure out what's true for us. And then expectations, I think, is another thing. You know, we we write stories about the life we thought we were going to have, the life that we should have. And I've learned the hard way that after a while, if we don't drop the storyline and accept where we are, we won't be able to kind of find and figure out the life we're meant to be, the life that's meant to be. So there are a lot of beautiful um tips in the book. There are a lot of beautiful uh, points and guides in the book and there are exercises. And I truly believe that this book will inspire and will empower women to kind of drop the things that aren't real and find their truth and their value. And I have so much hope that women can step forward in a really powerful way and start to have the success and the joy and the peace that they truly look for in their lives. Allison, thank you so much for spending this time with us. I'm so sorry for what you've experienced, but I'm really happy that you were able to be here with us to share some of what you've learned. Thank you, Joan. I really appreciate you inviting me on your show. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. What is self-regulation and how can it help you feel and be the best version of yourself? Hi, I'm Allison Ayati. I'm a musician, sound practitioner, and the creator of The Sound Life, a lifestyle app for relaxation and meditation through sound and music. Self-regulation is a way of responding to life's events by asserting control over your thoughts, emotions, and behavior. Sounds easy, but it's not. If it was easy, no one would ever get angry. No one would ever break down in tears when things aren't going their way. But it can be learned. Most people learn self-regulation through some sort of program or therapy. Some people learn to self-regulate by learning how to remain flexible and calm in their thoughts so their emotions and actions follow suit. One incredibly impactful way to discipline the mind is through the practice of sound meditation. Sound meditation is a passive form of meditation that requires very little effort to do. You have to devote 15 to 20 minutes per day and find a quiet and comfortable place to sit or lay down. Then you just turn on the sound meditation music and let the sounds move through you. Your breathing slows, your mind relaxes, and your body releases tension. The best thing about sound meditation is that you can do it on your lunch break. You can do it when the first stressful event of the day hits you. All you need is your headphones and 15 minutes to take a break. To learn more about sound healing and sound meditation, go to livingthesoundlife.com. Sound meditation is not a replacement for medical or psychological intervention. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life book club, created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. Thanks for staying with us. Our next guest, Esther Pippoli, helps families navigate life's difficult moments. She's the owner and founder of Loss of Life Advocates, also known as Lola. Her company provides confidential concierge grief support to families, business owners, and employers, helping them navigate the operational side of loss. Welcome, Esther. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Oh, thank you for having me, Joan. It's good to be here. Esther, recently I spoke with grief expert David Kessler, who wrote a book about finding meaning from our grief. And I believe that it really is an important part of healing. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think everybody um, looks at a loss differently. You know, there's no two losses that are the same. And David is definitely an expert in this field of, of really helping people finding meaning around loss. And for what we do at Lola, you know, we spend time with families really helping them navigate some of the busy work around, um, you know, closing down a loved one's life. But really, as you're going through that busy work, you're actually finding meaning about why, you know, the loss has occurred. You're finding meaning about that person. And so sometimes what doesn't seem to be understandable, you can't comprehend it. It's very confusing. Um, Once you're going through those processes of shutting down somebody's life, you really start finding that the meaning of their life and what they brought to the table for you and why it was so valuable to relationship begins to help you find the meaning. And I know it's hard to tie it back to loss, but everybody has meaning while we're here on earth with each other. And sometimes that kind of gets lost in translation when somebody's terminally ill or uh, maybe they've had a sudden death in the family and people are very confused and they're angry or they just don't understand. And so I think one of the things that we try to focus on when we're working with families is by helping them go through the processes of Um, learning about their loved one because there's a whole other side of them they may not have known, that they really start to find meaning that, you know, this person's life had um, passion. It had things that they were, that were important to them. And it makes that loss um, find purpose. I remember years ago when my father was dying, I had gone to speak with my parish priest and he told me to look for the blessings and to find the meaning. And I remember I was very angry at him because I was thinking to myself, my father's dying and you want me to find a blessing in this? But it was years later when I looked back and I realized when I took my dad for chemo and radiation and we spent a lot of time together when we did that, and we talked and we laughed, and, and I got to know him more in those few months than I had in my entire life leading up to that. So when you make the conscious decision to look for the blessings or to find a reason or a purpose from whatever situation, I think it's there when you, when you really make the decision to search for it. I agree, and I think, Joan, that's a perfect example of um, that you're sharing with us. Because there are a lot of people that um, go through the process of losing somebody they love or, or watching them pass away from cancer, um, and it's, it's, it's just confusing, right? It's very confusing. You become angry. Why, why now? I haven't had enough time. Or maybe there's um, – it's just a very – it's like a very numb, a numbness to the word. I hate to use that word numb, but you, people are really hurting um, during this period of time. And I think that sometimes we get – we get confused and we tend to lash out on those things that come um, so easy to other people to tell us, you know, when, when your priest is saying, oh, that's such a blessing, you're so lucky, you're getting to spend some time with your dad. And at that moment in time, you're like, you know, that's the last thing I want to hear. I'm just so angry that he's suffering. And I think that as you move forward and you're trying to find meaning afterwards, you realize that um, you do get to have some of those conversations. You do get to have some of those moments because what people teach us through death is um, the greatest lesson. Some people that um, go through this process of of dying, and if you're watching somebody you love die, it's actually a lesson to you and to everybody around how to enter into leaving this world in that transition. And as painful and hard as it is, I always tell people, be careful, don't look away, look in, because this is a lesson that your loved one is giving to you, and it is giving you meaning, and you will not see it for a while. But years later, you'll look back and say, wow, I can really truly appreciate that Um, My loved one showed me that death can be with dignity. Um, And so it's not always beautiful. People will say, no, Esther, it's not. It's not beautiful. But um, it is something that years later you say, gosh, I'm glad I was there. I'm glad I got to have those conversations. I got I'm glad I got to spend so much time with them. So, yes, it is truly hard to see the blessings. I, I think also when you are able to start to shift the way you you view something to reframe how an experience impacts your life, I think that's when you can also turn it into something positive. Like, for example, the woman who starts a a drunk driving campaign or organization after losing a child to a drunk driver or, you know, those types Mm -hmm. of things where you can turn a, a horrific experience in your life into something positive that does some good even in the world. Absolutely. It's the, you know, it's the um, classic, you know, making 
um, lemons into lemonade. And I think that for some people it does take time. But um, I think back to what David, you know, talks about is that you have to, there's a lesson and meaning into every loss that is happening around you. Um, So it's just a matter for some people, it's all different times. And I always compare it to um, an airplane, you know, when you're at the airport, no two planes land at the same spot. Um, everybody deals with grief and finding meaning through about loss is going to be something that's going to be different for everybody on a different time frame. And this is what your important work is all about. And so if our listeners would like to learn more about Esther and her work, you can visit lossoflifeadvocates.com. Or as always, to hear more from Esther, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Esther. Esther, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. With the end of another school year approaching, you may be wondering what the future holds for your child when it comes to college. We all know that a college education doesn't come cheap. Hi, my name is Kate Toby, financial services professional with the Fortis Agency. Here are some tips to consider before preparing to save for your child's college education. Number one, start saving today. It is never too soon for parents to start saving into a college fund for their children. One of the biggest mistakes made is thinking that you have plenty of time before you have to sign a big check for school. However, if you begin saving early, you will give your child more options and feel better prepared for the future. Number two, college saving accounts. Ask your advisor about the different savings vehicles used specifically for college. Find out if a 529 plan, Coverdell Education Savings Account, or a non-college specific account is best for your situation. For more information on saving for college, send me an email at ktoby at thefortisagency.com. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.